1: Hi, I'm Jerry Boyer. Welcome to Meeting of Minds podcast on the Salem Podcast Network. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Arthur Agatston. Uh, he's the head of the Agatston Center uh, in Miami Beach. He's the author of numerous best-selling books. His most recent is the New Keto-Friendly South Beach Diet. That's my Kindle of it. I um, tend to be more Kindle reader. Um, and um, obviously he's the author of the South Beach Diet and that whole series of books. He is the leading preventive cardiologist in the world and inventor of the Agustin score, which is a score um, that uh, measures the plaque burden on the heart uh, via calcification, which is considered the most accurate test of the risk of heart disease. He's also my cardiologist. Uh, so Dr. Agustin, thank you for uh, joining us today.
2: Great to be with you.
1: When I saw you last, you talked to me about seeing in your practice and hearing others, um, where there are people who are coming to you because they have a calcium score, a positive calcium score, maybe a high one, placing them at risk. And you're trying to reconnoitre, you're, you know, you're doing, you know, kind of archaeology of how did we get here? And you've noticed a pattern of the the foundation for the problem, maybe they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, when they see you the foundation for the problem going back to their career building years. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you've seen? Sure. Well, I I take a a careful history
2: of weight and when weight was put on, because as you put on weight, particularly a belly, uh, that makes changes in your cholesterol that causes the buildup of plaque. So when it started, we can tell from our calcium scan, often that, that it was an old problem, more genetic, or if it was lifestyle, it started very early. And so I've always taken a careful weight history. Hmm. And by the way, we know particularly today, that if somebody is heading for metabolic problems, meaning diabetes, when they're 60s, 70s, or even 80s, there are abnormalities of insulin secretion in their in their early 20s while they're still thin. Hmm. So all this metabolic problem leading to heart disease and really all of our chronic diseases, Alzheimer's, a lot of cancers, uh, autoimmune diseases, uh, it's, it starts early and the earlier we can discover it, the easier it is to prevent. So in taking these histories, um, I noticed with so many men and women, uh, the weight gain started when they were building careers um and when first children came Mm. so it's two times that it breaks up your usual exercise routine you're eating on the go and it was just kind of incredible that the weight started to come on during these periods and and so many people who built their own companies and now i may have seen them after their everything is easy now they don't have the same stresses and they lost a lot of the weight. But back when I asked them, were you ever heavy? Did you ever have a belly? Yes, when I was building my career, when I was building my company. And that's again, when they tend to be married and having kids, which obviously, you know the number of kids you have can certainly certainly disrupt, uh, like Edison did, it can disrupt your your sleeping uh, and your exercise.
1: Well, oh, yeah. I, I can tell you from my own life that's exactly what happened. High stress, twenties and thirties, um, building various careers and businesses, including being a radio talk show host. I shot up. I I got up to I uh, like three oh five. Um, yeah. Now now, I'm down seventy pounds. You know, keto diet got me seventy pounds, and I've kept it off um but it, uh, it i don't know if it was the stress of it or the lifestyle change or just like you only have certain amount of willpower to go around so you're either going to spend that willpower on the job or you're going to spend that willpower on on health um but i certainly in my case i put the weight on when i was highly career oriented then later a health scare get serious about it and then take the weight off so that's the pattern that you're seeing
2: and and it's really it is all of the uh, and I, I'll tell you, one of the things I was most skeptical about it was studies, well, stress is causing the weight gain. I mean, certainly it can cause some eating binges and, and other issues. Um, and I had a physician who um, was, he actually had a low calcium score. The prevention wasn't the big thing. He had a, a valve problem that he followed for years. And he, um, but he had gained some weight, hardly perceptible, uh, and he all of a sudden lost the weight and was doing much better when he quit his job. He was working for a major hospital, like with major corporations, with unbelievable stress. And he came in one day, and I looked at the difference in his numbers, and I said, boy, um, you know, you must have... You were starting to exercise again. You're able to follow a diet when you quit the job. And I was surprised. He said, no, he didn't do anything differently. It was all this. And I knew how much stress he was on. He didn't deal with stress well. It was just, it was all the cortisol that he was decreasing. Hmm. So the stress alone does do it. Um, But certainly uh, the lack of sleep we talked about, that has an effect on insulin and metabolism. Um, and, and the grabbing, not having regular meals and grabbing meals and pizzas and all the usual stuff. And we can talk about the exercise, which we, there've been a lot of misunderstandings about exercise and our, what we have thought about it has changed. But the, the other interesting thing I've seen recently it was one after another patient. Um, when and they often they came to me. Why did they come to me? They were tired, often they sold their business. Yes. And now they had time to take care of their health. And the weight gain came when they were selling a business, which I very found stressful out was event very, very stressful. Yes. And so um and even people who I knew before were you were healthy their businesses were good they going well that's when i guess they sold the businesses and so it wasn't that much stress but the selling of the business was mm. and again they stopped their usual lifestyle patterns and they gained weight well this so is interesting I unless you're a,
1: unless you're a mergers and acquisition person unless your job is buying and selling businesses then your skill set and your comfort zone is running the business yes right like right now I'm in a negotiation about our business. So we're busy. We work very hard with our business, but we're running processes that are in our muscle memory. We're familiar.
3: Yes.
1: But now we, now we're, you know, we have a client and a possible other client and we're negotiating. And that's a different skill set. I mean, you might sell one business in your lifetime. For a lot of people I know, they build one business, they sell that business. That's their pile and that's, that's their life. That's their career. Then they retire. So that's a once in a lifetime thing. Um and so that's like that's far more stressful than working forty hour weeks of negotiating are more stressful probably than eighty hour weeks of doing a job you're used to
2: Yes, and let me i'll point out one thing where the stress is because i'll <coughs> have families that come and um and it, it's often a you know a, a daughter, a wife and the husband he has too much stress uh he has to he has to relax. And, you know, it's a type A person who's built the business. And if I tell them and and loves what they do, and if I tell them not to work, they'll shrivel up and die. And I know it. Right. And uh, so it's what you're saying. You may work long hours, but when you love what you do, it's not the same type of stress, especially when you're working for
1: yourself. And and selling your business is probably not something that you love to do. Right? Exactly, um, and it's,
2: again, it's not your—it's not where your expertise is. Your expertise was in running the business.
1: I also wonder to what degree you see—you know—somebody has what's called the liquidity event. They sell the business, right? That's a fascinating observation you just had. It might not be the building the business that's the main issue. It might be the selling the business. That's the—that's um, where you have the heart attack or the, let's say, the preconditions of that. Um, so now they're type A personalities. So they come to you and it's like, okay, money's no longer an issue. You remember in the movie Forrest Gump, you know, Sergeant Dan tells them, sure. you'll never have to worry about money again. It's like, okay, one less thing to worry about. They don't have to worry about money. So what's next on the agenda? It's going to be family or it's going to be mortality, <laughs> right? So yeah. now yeah. I, I bet you're seeing people whose job now is like, okay, I'm going to reverse the heart disease <laughs> that I created yes. building my, my new career is getting healthy. Are you seeing that?
2: Uh, absolutely, and it, one thing that's interesting is some of the times that Type A personality works hard. They say that Type A may increase your stress, and I, that that is not all that clear. But but um, when they they will work um, hard on 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 getting better, and they're very interested in the science. And you know, I like to teach and talk, and some people just aren't that interested. Uh, the entrepreneurs who come, they're very interested, like you, and they ask very, very good questions, and which I fortunately happen to love, and and so that's that's part of what they're trying to do, and I enjoy. it. But the other thing is people who um, the type A, who again they don't have, um, they don't have the interest um, to switch to, to apply. They, I mean you know, lying on the beach or playing golf every day is not good for everybody. Right. Um, I certainly fit into that. Yes. Um, I, I, even a long vacation. I, I like, I like a a lot of my, uh, you know, uh, uh, of my sports and other interests, but, um, but not, not full time. Hi everyone. If you've been injured in an accident, that was not your fault. Listen up.
1: they have to be engaged in some kind of activity. I wonder to what degree um, you see people like that because there's a certain sense – okay, so what, what I notice is distinctive about entrepreneurs is they're not specialists. So what skill set did they need? They need whatever skill set they need that day. Right. So they have to, they don't have like different subjects. I'm in finance. They've got a CFO and they have to be able to deal with the CFO. They've got an operations people. Maybe they're dealing with an engineer. They're they're not siloed, right? They can't be siloed. And people like you aren't siloed either. The the science right now, what's happening now is there's a convergence going on where you, a cardiologist like you is talking to Lustig, who's an endocrinologist. And you're talking to people who are, you know, who are neurologists and you're talking, right? Right. So that's entrepreneurial in the sense that it's not siloed.
2: Yeah, that, that, that's, that's true. And it absolutely is entrepreneurial. Um, although there are things I don't like to do, like I can't look at books. Um, I talk to our staff. I, my idiot Savant theory of life, we all have that areas of Savant and idiots. Right. And whether sometimes I think, well, I could do it if I put my mind to it, but I know I'm not going to put my mind to it. Right. So I say very clearly, this is your area of savant, uh, your area of idiot. This is my area of idiot. So you know where you have to fill in for me. Sure. And I'm I'm saying
1: track. something a little different. I get what you're saying. That you're not yeah. entire. Like you're as an entrepreneur, you've got to delegate finance or whatever because yeah. you're not in the system anymore. It's the Agustin right. Center. It's not Dr. Agustin at the mega super duper you know co- consolidated university. You know, uh, teaching hospital, medical center, right? You're yes. not in the bowels of a bureaucracy, but I'm, I'm saying something about a way of thinking, which mm-hmm. is you're not, you're, you're intellectually entrepreneurial. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, and yeah. entrepreneurs yes. are going to be drawn to that. And I think the other thing is entrepreneurs don't care what other people, they don't care what the incumbents think about them. Otherwise they'd still be working for IBM. Yes. You know, they, they're willing to break away from the herd. And the sort of thing that you're talking about, um, which is not using, not looking at something from the Framingham study from, you know, something study that's 50 years old where it's like, gotta get your cholesterol down. You know, I mean, you're like keeping up with the developments and by keeping up with the developments of what's going on now and what you're seeing means that you're going to be 10, 15 years ahead of the enforced consensus, which yes. means you're going to like tick people off. And you have to be willing to say, I don't really care what they think. I care what the truth is. I care what the data says. And I care what I see with my very own eyes looking at 15,000 scans. And I'm willing to not follow the the group when that means I can can save patients' lives by not following the group think. And that's an entrepreneur setting as well.
2: Yes. And and the thing about being an entrepreneur, which you know, is when you – I enjoy it so much – um, that's more important to me than, you know, making somebody happy. Now I, you know, today we all have to be a little careful in what we say about what, which I, um, but, um, and, and that, I mean, so, you know, I, I will be diplomatic, but not in the medical realm. Um, right. You know, really not, not so much. And I get more and more frustrated Um with how, how way behind consensus. I mean, when you get the consensus and guidelines, they are 15 years behind, behind the times. Well, I can tell you talking
1: to, I won't mention names, but talking to a cardiologist about the, about the calcium scan six years ago, it was like, wow, that's kind of new. That's not, it's not new. It's from the 1980s. Yeah. Um. And they were you know, parroting some line, I think, from the the Cleveland Clinic at the time. Well, why would you test something you can't do anything about? Well, you can do something about it. So, I, I mean, people are, are talking about things that are really, there's working physicians who are talking about, who are saying things that are literally 40 or 50 years out of date with the data. And one of the problems,
2: I really feel sorry for so many physicians because- you, you can no longer work in the, the old uh, Marcus Welby you know, GP, who was a member of the community and loved what they did. Now you have five minutes to see a patient um, and then 10 to 15 minutes to do the documentation, which by the way, I will say is worthless because the documentation is for insurance companies. It's not for the patient or for other doctors. Mm. And so if you're doing all those clicks, and it's it's miserable, and I do have so many friends. They love medicine, um, but they they can no longer keep an office open. So they're working for a big corporation or a medical center, which today is a big corporation, uh, with administrators looking over their shoulder. And uh, you know, I had somebody who was who was training uh, in medicine. We said, well, they don't care if you kill the patient as long as the chart looks good.
1: Right. Yes. And, as long as you can justify it, insurance-wise or whatever. Yes, right. insurance-wise. Yes. Yes. And
2: and if all everything's documented the right way. And so it's very frustrating, but it's harder for doctors to keep. It's much easier because you can get so much on online and you can either the best lecturers in the world mm-hmm. on social on social media you don't have to necessarily go to a meeting um, but it's um uh but you you're you're frustrated and they're they they do not like practicing like the fellow um the gastroenterologist i i mentioned who were tired be, because of really the stress mm.
1: and and it's happy now. well so we're t- you're seeing uh, you know more and more patients who you know they they build up heart disease risk during their career building and the selling of the business they get something scares them um <clears> or maybe there's a change in priority maybe they get a, a calcium scan which they should get a calcium scan they the last one i bought- last time I got one was forty nine dollars i i mean for pete's sake yeah. get you know even if your insurance doesn't cover it spend the fifty bucks to find out before you know, the, with the
2: new equipment, radiation is not an issue anymore.
0: Yeah, I see. At all. Right.
2: So it, the, the cost and the radiation is just not an issue. So there's really
1: no excuse. Right. Just people get don't get around it. to it or they don't want to face the truth. But something happens. Somebody sees that. They find their way to you because you invented the calcium scan score, right? Um, and you're concierge, which means you're not in the in the insurance system. So they have to pay extra for that and most people are locked into the insurance system and yet you know you have to have, have some level of achievement to be able to afford concierge medicine not saying something super expensive but you know you're paying for what you're pay, you're paying for something that other people are getting for free only you're getting a much better version so i think that that there's that confluence between entrepreneurs and the emergence of concierge medicine but there's also There's something you said to me, which is so many of the really good people, not all of them, but so many of the really good people are refugees from the bureaucratic medical centers and they're out there. And I call, I think of a sort of a rebel alliance of people, very good mainstream education, you know, Ivy league or near Ivy league, you know, schools, Mm -hmm. top of their class, really brilliant. But truth seekers rather than resume builders, and they go out there and then they talk to each other at conferences and that network to me is probably the most important thing going on in medicine right now in the world and i, I you know what I'm referring to, so yes. yeah would you talk yes. about that and, a little bit
2: and i mean the well the, the networking is much easier um right now uh you know so many people i I know somebody's good, and I can read their papers, but I just go on, on the internet and I listen to their lectures. And then I see which papers, um, you know, I, I want to review or I want to use in my slides. And uh, depending, I, you know, I, I call them. And that networking has become much easier in recent years. It's just, you know, when I was in medical school, my roommate spent a whole summer Reviewing the literature for a professor, and that was something called the Index Medicus. It was the same in law, and you had these big books, and that's how I started. I go in the library and I stay there forever. Um, but now you can—I mean, a search like that, you don't even have to go to PubMed. You can literally, um, you can literally use Google Scholar.
1: Google Scholar, PubMed, original,
2: right? yeah, yeah, find the original papers. So um, reviewing, and I'm, in fact, when I was in medical school, um, I was a history major in college, and I never liked biochemistry, and I didn't see the application. Now, I go back, biochemistry, organic chemistry, and you, there are so many great courses and different teachers, you from the Khan Academy to, Mm -hmm. you know, there are others I look at now. Yep. So, when biochemistry is coming up in something new, I'm interested in. The most recent thing is is uh, is cholesterol ester transport protein inhibitors. The CETPs, um, yep, right? Yes, yeah. and and so I'm going back and to the basic biochemistry. It's what I did a lot last weekend, but it's a pleasure. Something I hated. Learning when I was in medical school, but I now
1: you've got a purpose it. for it. Now it fits into something. It's like it. it maybe helps you explain dysfunctional HDL, right? Yeah, uh, that, that might exactly. be why you were looking at that particular um, issue, right? In fact, uh, it's a
2: combination between. It's it's exactly that. When I see you, I'll tell you that story. <laughs> um, it's it's something it's something new, and it explains a lot of why um, one of the, one of the the dilemmas always is somebody thinks that while well, they're young, healthy, they may have a little belly they can hardly see, um, but all of a sudden a lot, high calcium score, even more scary, uh, they have a heart attack, how could it happen to me? Right. And there are a bunch of reasons why it happens and that's kind of what, uh, what we do. And sometimes it's all genetic, usually there's a lifestyle component. And one of the interesting things uh, one of the interesting phenomena today is right now, if you look in Asia, South Asia, Mumbai, or you go to China in, in, uh, in Beijing, they have the same or more diabetes than we have. They didn't always, that's since we exported our diet, particularly the sugar, hmm. um, to, to Asia. Um, but they don't have nearly the obesity but they have horrible vascular disease. And the reason is um, that they don't have the obesity we do is they don't store fat under the skin, which is a safe place to store store fat, called subcutaneous fat. Mm -hmm. And there is a disease actually called lipodystrophy where you can't make the subcutaneous fat. So all the extra that sugar that turns to fat, it goes in what are called ectopic places, your liver, your pancreas, your muscle, your belly.
1: I see. So they feel safe, you know, because they're not obese. But, you know, they've got thin arms. They've got, you know, there's no muscle, whatever. And then there's just that bowling ball. Yes. Right? And that bowling ball might be 25 pounds. But, man, what a deadly 25 pounds that is if it's basically – there, it's the liver, you know, and the pancreas, and it's like visceral it, it, fat. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Yeah. And
2: so, so we, so that's why um, in South Asia, they often, um, you'll know, have the thin arm and thin legs, but they're having the same diabetes and vascular disease or more hmm. than, than we are. And then I realized a lot of people I've seen over the years, we call them tofis um, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. And one patient in particular, always athletic, very high calcium score from a young age. Hmm. um, So a lot of plaque. And he used to literally show off his six pack to some of our staff. The reason they have very little subcutaneous fat so that their muscle stands out. And I realized, and I used to think they're so healthy. I see some some visceral fat, which there's liver fat.
1: Um, That's the lipodystrophy. A, they, can't by, store, they, they can't store. They can't store the fat Lipodystrophy, exactly. Yeah, yeah, right, and
2: it's not uncommon. So a lot of Americans are walking around, and again, we know since we measure insulin levels um, that this starts early. So a lot of people in their twenties and thirties they think they're thin, um, but if they've been putting weight on um, in their belly. Again, when they're building their business, their family,
1: uh, selling, um, it's, it's, not, it's not benign. And there and might be some people with like a symmetry, they might have a triple chin, yep. but no visceral and clear arteries, right? But yep. they're, they're, pu- yes. they're putting the fat,
2: you well, know, here. It's, it's central. So the double or triple chin um, is often, and there's fat around the heart. I see. So that's part of it. People who lose weight on a low carb diet, people come up and said, um, you know, tell me, Joe, you when did you when did you have your face left? He said, no, it was just low carb.
1: I and see. So not, so the chin is but might be love handles that are OK or something like that. Love or handles are arms, okay. Right. I see. The
2: love handles are I can't pitch an inch. An inch is subcutaneous. That's safe fat. You can be literally 400 pounds. This is unusual. They're going for gastric bypass surgery. And when the gastric bypass surgeons open the patient up, or now they look in with scopes and they're used to seeing a very fatty liver. That's the most common association with this huge weight gain. But every once in a while, they see a pristine liver.
3: Hmm. It's
2: rolls of fat and it's all under the skin. So we talked about the toffee thin on the outside, fat on the inside, um, you can be fat and fit. If it's all the fats on the outside, not on the inside,
1: you can have a perfectly healthy heart and not have all that risk. So on this issue of kind of the network, right? Um, it's It's that you can network with other people. But I think something else I've learned from you is that to some degree, the medical conversation in the past has focused very much on clinical studies as opposed to observational medicine from people who actually have to look at the patient in the eye or the widow. Um, so there's kind of skin in the game, looking at scans, looking at, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of, of you know, lipid profiles. And that's, that's there's, an, there's an inductive, Process of learning there, uh, as opposed to the can you get the study funded, right, yes. and get a get as small a p value as you can so you can get it published. And what I what I'm learning from you is a lot of the really exciting stuff is people who are out there actually doing medicine and learning who can read studies, but that's different than just studies. That, that there there's a kind of like a two prongness to this. You see well, what I you mean? Know,
2: well, the way sort of research evolved is. People in practice um, would see an interesting case, and they report a case study, and somebody said, hey, I've seen some of that, and report a case series of similar patients, and then somebody would do a bigger study or a clinical trial. Now, when I started, when I first came down after my fellowship, and I I you know, ran what was non-invasive cardiology, particularly echocardiography was one of my first subspecialty. And we had a huge referral center, it was at Sinai, Miami Beach, all the way up to Orlando. And we'd have 100 patients in the hospital at one time. And I would see a huge amount of patients. So when I was first studying for my boards, when I was in practice for a year, I said, I didn't have to read what the complications were of a particular drug, I would see him. You'd see it, Yeah. Right. And when I saw a number of interesting echocardiograms, I would, with the fellows, I would report a few, uh, you know, case studies, uh, case series, and I, you know, I could do it and it wasn't that hard. Today, if you're using somebody's data, you, the, you have to get permission, it has to go through the IRB, the internal review boards. There's so much, um, there's just so much red tape and bureaucracy that it's evolved that, and especially if you're doing a bigger study, you have to be a clinical trialist. Um, it's very hard to be a clinical trialist and a clinician at this time. Mm. And the clinical trialist is expert in getting their clinical trial approved and funded. And they often miss some relatively simple things that I think they would know if they were seeing patients. And I will say if they had time to see the patients long enough to think about the patients Hmm. a little bit. Hmm. So I'm concerned that some of the quality of some of the clinical trials are not what they used to be um, because they're not really clinician generated. Uh, there's the clinical trialist. that's how they make their living. and you know they're, they're very good and some are great clinicians, certainly. Um, but their incentive is a little different than than the clinician. And the, the academic used to be, they used to be clinicians who were teaching,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and there was, so much was just was learned um you know, from from your mentor to to the mentee so now it's a different
1: it's just a different career path yes. right with and I with think the that's sk-
2: really apprenticeship is so important mm-hmm. i'm sure in your life and everything you learn from somebody and that's that's the most Where you learn the most, a way of thinking.
1: Well, there's in, I do a lot of data science, right? So I study statistical significance testing a lot, whether it's economics or finance or medicine. It's the same rules, right? Yes. And there's a tendency to dismiss anecdotal evidence. But the fact is that human learning is anecdotal, right? We, um, statistical uh, relationships don't tell us anything about cause and effect. They tell us about correlation. Um, they might tell us how likely the correlation is to occur, if it's random, right? So the p value says, well, let's say that this is a weird accident. How likely is it that this would have occurred, right? So, oh, one in one in twenty chance or whatever. But it can never answer a question about cause and effect. Yes. But actually looking at something, you know, actually looking at the biochemistry or looking at the, this, the looking at the physical world, not tables of data. That's how you learn cause and effect. That's how human beings actually yes. reason. And if you leave that out, it becomes a bureaucratic process essentially about which drugs will get approval for insurance or which drugs will get approval from the FDA. It's essentially a technique for dealing with bureaucracies, which itself, then, clini- then clinical work itself becomes a kind of another part of the bureaucracy um, no, you're, and, and you're isn't you're about ab- truth anymore.
2: You're absolutely right. And when people are building CVs and the number of papers they published or whatever, um, they often, when there's a big clinical trial, observational, not observational, um, you get access to that clinical trial and there's a lot of data mining. And so, and that's particularly in in population science, epidemiology. And when you data mine, you see a correlation that's statistically significant, but that doesn't mean it's clinically significant. And usually if it's not literally a two to one, you know, smoking, we've never done a double blind placebo controlled study on smoking. That's the best example. Um, But smokers it's 20, 30 times the chance of having lung cancer than non-smokers and, and, you know, similar with, with, with other types of disease. Um, So you don't have to do, the uh, you don't have to do the double blind or clinical study. And so, and uh, and the problem is with the observational studies they're reporting, it's like smokers had you know 17% more lung cancer than non smokers. That's meaningless right. or 20%. Right. And a lot of that's being done, it's called data mining, and that you'd be familiar with. And uh, data mining mm,
1: and P hacking, right? Because you have to have a low P value to get study, to get the study published and it's not cause and effect. But if you're actually looking at a lung filled with tar, right, in an autopsy, then you've got a cause and effect thing going on here and yourself, of course, I I can see what's going on here. And and with you, how many scans have you read over your career? How many? Oh boy, I don't know. Thousands and thousands
2: and thousands, I guess. Right. Hundreds of thousands, maybe. I mean, all types of heart scans. Yeah, um, and you and you you see patterns. That's it. And and, and funny with one of the colleagues I'm, I'm uh, working with, we saw something, and it was distributions of the size of cholesterol particles. And I knew there was something there, and I wasn't sure what it was. And we were visiting Israel, and I went to the Technion and I spoke to their facial recognition people. And I said, if I give you a scan that looks like this, and I know there's something in there, but I can't, I can't quantify it, um, could you do it? And they said, yes, they could. Now I never got back to them, but this this uh, fellow I'm, I'm collaborating with now, um, he had the same idea. And we think 20 years later, we know, What we were both seeing. Hmm. And we think we're gonna find the reason for it, the correlation, and it's gonna explain why a lot of people develop heart disease at in at an early age. But that's looking at scans and knowing there's an association, but even at first not being sure. What it was. Is that the and, thing we
1: talked about in your office? The valley between the LDL peak and the yes, HDL peak? Like absolutely. what's in there that we're not seeing? Yes. Very large HDL, very, very small LDL. That's, that's what you're referring to. Is that's that exactly is that right?
2: right? Yeah. And that's, and, uh, yes, you can join our team anytime. <laughs> and, and that's where, um, because
1: if you actually look at it on scale, a big HDL is not that much smaller than a small LDL. I mean, they're pretty close yes. on an absolute scale. Absolutely. So it's like, oh, really small LDL is bad, right? But really big HDL is great. Well, they're, they're, they're right next to each. I mean, they're, you know, it's like, it's only a few Angstroms difference. Yeah, so, and, that, and that's why I was spending
2: the last couple of weekends looking at this CTEP and going back to basic science, yeah. which fortunately I'm um, working with a, with a genius named, Dr. Ron Krause, who's he developed all these tests and so there's a newer technology where he is looking under the hood um, it's something you you can't you can see a little bit on the scans we look we look at with the distributions um, but there's more there and you know uh,
1: you' hopefully'll we'll be able to Got it. explain this so the ion mobility do- test doesn't see it as well is that right uh, so he, uh, yeah, has a- it
2: doesn't it well, it does when you go under the hood with some stuff that's not available I to the clinician. But some, but what he, he has access to and where there's an, a new level. And it's just better and better computing and technology. It's You know, when we first, it was in the 50s, we can measure total cholesterol. Yes. And there were some correlations, but it turned out in an individual, total cholesterol is useless as a predictor. It's, it has a vague... A vague surrogate for LDL cholesterol.
3: Hmm.
2: Well, we know LDL cholesterol is a vague surrogate for number of LDL cholesterol particles, which is a surrogate for small LDL particles, and so um, which
1: which is a surrogate for being in the being in the system too long, right? Um, yes. Duration, yes, a- and oxidation and dysfunctional. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, we're still,
2: so we're, still, we're still digging down and to think because we're poo-pooing total cholesterol, we know it all, no. And that's, that's the wonderful thing about the technology. I mentioned like looking at the pancreas now with, with newer generations of MRIs. Um, we, anytime I was fortunate to be in the early days of echocardiography, with any new technology you're learning things. You could only measure insulin levels in the late '60s, '70s when there were immune assays. you could, learn, you could um, quantify protein hormones. They, they couldn't do that in the 20's. They just they had sugar, glucose. And so with all this, the, with the march of technology, um, you can dig down deeper and deeper. And if you're in on a new technology, it's particularly exciting.
1: Well, like it's the calcium scan, science. that was a new technology. Yes. Wait a minute! It's not just a scan, not just an X-ray. It's an X-ray in a fragment of a second, in a fraction of a second. Yes. And if you can do that in a fraction of a second, then you can do slice, 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 and you can get a three-dimensional version of yep. the heart, and you can see plaque burden. We yes. can see calcium burden as a proxy for plaque burden.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And by the way, the early fast scan. It was called the Imatron, the ultrafast cat scanner. <clears throat> and that was, it, it, it acquired the image in less than a second. So if something was moving, like a, a pediatric case, a kid who wouldn't lie still, or the heart, which is beating, you could freeze it like using a fast shutter speed to freeze a racehorse. Hmm. And so you could stop the action and you could quantify calcium. For something that wasn't moving, like an adult brain or your arm, you couldn't see it as well. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened after 10 years, because that original scanner was $2 million, the conventional scanner was $1 million. But then they developed these multi-slice scanners you know, around 2000, um, the 64 slice, well, first it was eight, 32, 64, now they're up to you know, over 300 slices. And they're faster, with better resolution. And that you can see everything as well as the heart. So, what happened in the 2000s was with the scanners they used for everything else, they didn't have to spend an extra million dollars. With just some software, they could see the calcium also. I so, see. the calcium research really, really took off. And now it's part of, you know, it is part of national um, guidelines.
1: Although- Took long enough, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, mean, what is that? Like seven, eight years ago, it became part of national guidelines, something like that? Yes. yeah, Right? A a, a 1980s technology, and that's how long it took to get the best predictor um, as approved as part of the national guidelines. I mean, that's amazing to me.
2: Okay. Well, it's interesting because even back when we did the first scans, we knew that the amount of calcium reflected the total amount of arteriosclerosis at at post-mortem studies. So if you took out coronary arteries and some of you died and you looked at the amount of calcium and the total amount of plaque, they correlated very well. And we knew that the amount of plaque had something to do with people getting heart attacks. The misconception then, (laughs) when this is what I was taught in medical school, was you first had a limitation in blood flow when you reach the 70% blockage of the artery. And we, we thought, well, when it was 70% block, you could uh, walk 20 blocks in New York, then you wouldn't get enough flow to your, your heart and you'd start to get angina or chest pain. And as it got to be 75, 80, 85%, 90, you'd have chest pain when you walk 15 blocks, 10, and then you'd have the big one. The only thing was anybody in clinical practice knew that people didn't get progressively worsening chest pain. One day you were fine. The next day you had a heart attack. Hmm. It wasn't until later in the eighties that we realized that the, it, the, that the plaque started with a cholesterol pimple and that the plaque actually grew out. The vessel got bigger. We knew that in 1988 from a Dr. Glackoff who fixed coronary's, at normal, we call perfusion pressure, normal systemic pressure.
1: So it's remodeling. I mean, you, you get a block, but the but the body adapts and it pushes the it block remodels. out to make the yes. lumen back to normal size, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. And it's
2: when this this cholesterol pimple pops that you get a blood clot, and usually the blood clots just calcify over. And it's not until you have a really bumpy, lumpy, bumpy vessel. And a lot of calcium, a lot of arteriosclerosis, that you're really at risk of a heart attack. So we have a long window of opportunity. You began to understand this in the late '80s, um, '90s, but now it's really nailed down to the point that opening obstructive plaques um, that aren't causing symptoms—I um, mean, you don't prevent heart attacks from that. Hmm. So
1: you just—you uh, might relieve angina a bit. Yes. Exactly. Right, but so would remodeling, remodeling.
2: right? So, yes.
1: So, so would just like exercising regularly and kind of you know healing that, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Hmm. So now we understand uh, what all that meant, and the number one, the really the two predictors we can we can find that if you're heading
1: for a heart attack in your sixties or seventies, you will have plaque in your thirties and forties. Okay, so. There was, you used to call that the plumbing theory, right? Before. It's like, it just like sludge builds up. And then when it's a hundred percent, then that's a heart attack, right? Um, and instead plaque builds up. It's soft plaque, right? It pops. Um, and that has to do with like soft plaque and inflammation, right? Makes it vulnerable to that. And if it pops, that does, if it pops, that's not automatically a heart attack, right? Because it might be small enough or it might not form a thrombone or much of one. It might not. Exactly.
2: And when it happens at the beginning of the coronary arteries where flow is the most, what I, what I talk about is where your aorta comes down. That's the biggest vessel in your body. And it divides into your iliac arteries. It divides into your femoral arteries. These are all big arteries and you don't see people walking around grabbing their leg. Oh my God, I got the big one because they grow plaque. The plaques rupture, but the vessel is so big
0: washed away the the blood
2: just washed it away that happens at the beginning of the coronary so in the early days of our coronary calcium imaging people would see a plaque a calcified plaque high up in the left anterior descending that was called the widow maker but the fact is they always start up there and it's not till it progresses down uh, because as you get a lumpy bumpy artery you actually accelerate how fast you deposit the cholesterol, the atherosclerosis, and you also make the blood more likely to clot when you do rupture a plaque.
1: So the LAD, it's split, right? There's a fork. It splits, yes. And that's one of the reasons that you get it there, right? That's one of the reasons you get plaque there, right? Because the split slows down the flow just like with a yes. split you know with you know if you have a garden nose and you split it they don't get the same flow so there's a, a decrease in flow so you're more likely so it's not as strong to wipe it away and probably some rheological stuff that some swirling some yeah. eddying right
2: one of my favorite pictures is one done of the Colorado River where it's going around the bend and you can literally see the silt on the inside where the water is going slower on the outside it's going faster. It cuts. You see, actually, a little canyon, mm-hmm. and then it goes around the other way. And the canyon is on the other side. the silk again, is on is on the side uh, where the water is going more slowly. It has to go faster. That's why in horse racing, you know, the the horses hug the rail because to pass them, you got to go faster on the outside. Right. It's the same with arteries, and you see the cholesterol pimples on the
1: inside not on the outside. Fascinating. So what causes heart attacks is the pimple popping in a place where there's not enough blood flow to wash it away. And maybe some of the characteristics in terms of platelets blood thin versus thick. Um, So like smokers, for instance, have blood that clots a lot, right? Um, Yes. But people with high omega-3 diets have blood that doesn't clot that much. So you need a pimple. From the soft plaque and inflammation, it needs to pop. It needs to form a clot. The clot doesn't get washed away. Um, that's a heart attack. It's not the blood building up. Okay,
2: all right. And at the beginning of the vessel, it's a little bit like those big vessels, your aorta, where you won't get a sudden occlusion because the flow is so good, even though they can have plenty of arteriosclerosis, plenty of plaque ruptures. And so the beginning of the, car- of the coronary arteries the flow is very robust and and it washes away until once it gets stiff and you can't dilate the vessel, it becomes uh, effectively like a smaller artery. So
1: I see. So the, the artery is thinning, right, it's smaller, that, so, yes. okay. And if it's hard, atherosclerosis, sclero, in Greek, I was just reading a Greek text yes. that had the word scleromy in it, to harden, yes. it's hard, yes. so it can't open up when there's that clot to let the, Absolutely. like, yeah, I see. So then you stop them by, you, you had the, the preventing heart attacks is not to have the pimple. Yes. Mainly. Right. Yeah. And then if you have one and it pops to have a blood flow that to have blood characteristics, which are not given to over clotting. Yeah. That, yeah
2: okay. And for instance, the reason why you take an aspirin when you're at risk is it doesn't prevent the arterioscrow, the cholesterol pimple or the rupture. But if you have the rupture, the platelets, you, you won't have as big a clot. And generally 99% of plaque ruptures, uh, they cause a healing plaque and not a heart attack. And it's not till further down the road. That's why we have a great window of opportunity. And the earlier we identify people, the easier it is to follow that we're not developing more pimples and more calcifications. That means it's pretty much a guarantee of no heart attack.
1: Got it. All right. It all makes sense. Um, it is a shame that I've gone almost my whole life without hearing that, even though the scientific evidence is overwhelming and that people who are listening to this will have been told, that. Pe- lots of people will have gone to the doctor. The doctor will look at a total cholesterol number. And say yeah. good or bad based on that, and not be aware of any of this. It's tragic, yeah. um, but but on the other hand, we we know now, right? We're still learning, but we know now. You get and so get a calcium scan, maybe a craft test too, which you do, which is to look yeah, at. Now the
2: craft is not as widely available. The calcium scan is, yeah. but it's getting it's it's like a glucose tolerance test again that women get when they're pregnant, but you just have to measure an insulin level. Mm -hmm. And even if you do it, you know, fasting and say two hours, you can get a lot of, a lot of information. And that's one of the things we're, we're trying to teach and, and, and spread and, uh, developing some, you know, some very cost-effective ways to do that. That's part of the, Projects that were, uh, yeah. Because
1: working. eventually, it would be nice if it wasn't just concierge medicine. It would be nice if, like, this was available to everybody. Yes,
2: right? and I, and that's where we're working on that.
1: Got it. Well, Doctor Agustin, you've been very, very generous with your time. I so enjoy I've learned so much from you. I mean, I can't get enough of this, and I'm convinced you've well, saved you, my life. In addition so to you that, you
2: describe so much stuff. Frankly, better than I do. Your summaries, you get it so
1: well. It's a pleasure. To listen to the feedback. <laughs> anything else you want to say before we let you go? I um, if is there anything that we didn't cover that you want? I, I know I'm opening Pandora's box, but then that's up to you whether you uh, uh you know whether you step into let that. Me, you
2: know, one other thing we can put in about there you know, as far as myths. There's so many myths. We talked about you know percent stenosis and and um, you know about low carb dieting versus fat and and cholesterol. Um, One other myth we always thought of good cardiac exercise is aerobic or what we literally call cardio. And there was always debate cardio versus resistance training. And one of the things we noticed um, some years ago, what we were seeing people who had run marathons who had a lot of coronary calcium. For instance, I had um, three brothers. One was a marathoner, Two others weren't. There was heart disease in the family. The marathoner had the most coronary calcium. And now we have studies that the marathoners actually have a lot of coronary calcium. And there was one very uh, famous marathon, actually a physician and exercise physiologist who wrote the books about carb loading for marathons hmm. who while he was thin, still running marathons developed diabetes and he switched to a low-carb diet. In some early days, he got in trouble for
1: it. Are we talking um, about Noakes, Dr. Tim Noakes? Yes, 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 and Noakes, yes. Yes,
2: yes. And so, um, and what we didn't realize were marathoners um, have type one, slow twitch um, muscle, uh, muscle fibers. Right. And they're very good for aerobic exercise. You get while you're breathing, running a marathon, um, you're 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 able to have enough oxygen coming in and not overdoing it um, so that you can run the marathon with oxygen and you use some fat and some and some starch. Um, If you're sprinters, um, you sprint and that's anaerobic metabolism. Right. Um, You use it. It's, we call it fight or flight muscles, which are the fast twitch. Right. And, or they're type, what we call type 2B muscles. Right. And they have, they store their starch load, the glycogen in the muscle. And in, we realized that was because fight it needs or to be
1: available quickly. Right. If you're, available if you're, if you're running a three hour marathon, you've got plenty of time to tap into fat stores. Yes. But if you're running a 30 second sprint, that has the ATP has to be available or starch and uh, yes. it has to be available. Right. I'm sorry. So it you. turns
2: out um, if you were, a, you know, you were in a tribal society and um, all of a sudden there's a big animal and you got to take off. Yeah. So you want to break down the glycogen that's in the muscle um, and that turns into glucose and that can be very fast metabolism. So you produce atp quickly but the oxygen metabolism is called the krebs cycles and the electron uh, chain that is much slower and so you you build up the breakdown of glucose which eventually turns to lactic acid or lactate and that's what we feel as soreness right it's an acid so that's when you when you sprint and you're breathing hard and you you feel the tired muscles, that's the lactate building up. And then when you when you rest and your recovery time is how fast can that go through then the Krebs cycle and the oxygen chain, Mm. which is one of the reasons why as you get better and better that and you you sprint and I know you do the sprint intervals. I do. Um you you get better better recovery because you upregulate the oxygen enzymes also but you still, if you're going fast, which includes lifting weights, where you fatigue a muscle, uh, again, you're building up that la- lactate. That's, what, that's where you get failure. Right. And so it turns out resistance exercise or anaerobic exer- exercise um, is, is what builds muscle and glycogen stores. Now, whether you're a marathoner with small muscles or you're an aging person in the West where they say, well, with age, you're losing muscle mass, or so sarcopenia. sarcopenia
3: right.
2: Same as is, is osteopenia or osteoporosis. The muscle and the, and the bone goes at the same time
3: mm-hmm.
2: and you don't have room to store the glycogen. So when you're having sugar, you You can't store the glycogen, you turn it into fat
1: i see. so it's in the, it's in the bloodstream you, yes. you you don't you don't have the the you don't have the muscle mass and particularly sounds like fast twitch muscle which are which draw the sugar out of the system so instead yes. you've got the sugar in your blood, your body says can't have that it's toxic out comes the insulin right turn turn it into fat but if you have muscle mass, particularly fast twitch muscle mass then you're, that, that muscle mass is pulling sugar out of the bloodstream yes, all the time. and The insulin doesn't hydrogen. have to do it, right? So it's stored yes. as sugar in muscles rather than being stored as fat in your liver.
2: Yes. And so a lot of the marathoners who are carb loading hmm. and don't have a lot of glycogen storage, I think that's why Timothy Noakes and others have developed diabetes. And we know diabetes increases with age. Well, when... People have surgeries, they're incapacitated, you lose muscle mass, you atrophy very, very rapidly. Hmm. And they say the muscle gets replaced by fat, it does. But I think we understand the mechanism now. So keeping your muscle mass up as you age, which you can do, it doesn't take all that much time, but you wanna do resistance exercise, you can do anaerobic sprinting.
3: Sure. And
2: you know one of the interesting things, was interval training for marathoners. Uh, The Swedish marathon team, I think in 1916 Olympics, were the first that did it. And they did very well. And interval training became a big part of endurance training. And that's because the anaerobic metabolism helps store more more in the type 2B fibers if you're building up some of those as well.
1: Fascinating. Resistance is not futile. Um, in in this particular case, it's very, I I remember I was on a long bike ride, um, and someone pulled up next to me saying, aren't you Jerry Boyer? Cause he'd recognize me from TV or something. And we chatted and he was part of a biking group and they do, they would be doing long bike rides all the time. And then they'd go out to eat, um, and they'd get pie. And what he said is we, we bike so we can eat. Hmm. Right, so I think with a lot, of, uh, and I, I just have there's a family friend who mentioned that they had a friend who would run five miles every day, and he would eat an ice cream sundae every day. So there's something about like if I'm running long distance, I can do whatever I want, right?
2: If you're if you're running really long distance, hmm. um, the yeah, the endurance athletes are generally thin because uh, they're burning so many calories. But they say you can't outrun a bad diet, which right. is true. You don't burn that many calories. You have so you many fat right. stores. Right. So that's you you do much better by building up your fast switch. Right. Those you know, sprinters are always ripped compared to marathons. Right.
1: My my, the- my point yeah. is that that long distance yeah. athletes give themselves permission to have unhealthy diets. Yes. Yes. Especially sugary diets and You're right. and yes. by the way that guy the 5 5 miles a day um yeah. ice cream he left a widow behind in his 30s oh really um yeah. so um so that's you you said you wanted to bring I'm up sorry, a myth you
2: made exactly that the important point that's
1: yes. so the the myth is um the the old dogma about aerobics 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 should get rid of that myth and go more towards if you can sprinting but you know, mm-hmm. uh, but there are people who sprint with their walker, right? I mean there's whatever whatever level and resistance training that's better for longevity than a heavy emphasized emphasis on long distance. Yes. Yes,
2: okay. Absolutely. And it and even at any age, people have taken people in nursing homes who never exercise their sitting, and they do some simple resistance exercise and they, their activity improves tremendously. Sometimes they're out of their wheelchairs. Um, so you can do this at any age. And the older you are, uh, the more important it is.
1: Interesting. Any other myths you want to bust before we uh, call it a day? I think that's enough for today. <laughs> oh, no, this was wonderful. Dr. Arthur Agoston from the Agoston Center, uh, author of all of the, um, the uh, books about um, the South Beach diet, including most recently the new keto-friendly South Beach diet. Thank you so much for being with us on Meeting of Minds podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jerry. Really enjoyed it. And thank you for your work, your research, and for your service, particularly to me and my family. I'm Jerry Boyer. Join us again for Meeting of Minds podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and improve our national conversation by sharing it with some friends.